Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss scientific principles for optimising human performance. I am Dr. Phil Price, and on today's episode, we are joined by powerlifting coach Mike Toucher. Now, when strength training and endurance training simultaneously, the body is placed under so much stress because of all the different types of stimuli that it's been placed under. And because of this, it becomes really difficult to program in advance. You have to auto-regulate your program to account for the fact that you'll probably respond differently to all of these different types of stimuli. In this episode, Mike and I discuss the use of a subjective measure the rating of perceived exertion, the RPE for strength training and how we can utilize it to account for the different ways we respond to strength training. But before we get into the episode, I just want to tell you a little bit about our sponsors because without them, this podcast would not be possible. I wanted to express my gratitude to my production partner, Cult Media. Cult Media has been instrumental in the development and success of the Progress Theory. They have created brand guides, comprehensive podcast strategies, enhanced the podcast production, developed custom workflows for me, and edited and mixed all of the video, audio, and social media content. Cult Media's simple coach, create, and collaborate process has saved me hundreds of hours in podcast production, resolved countless technical issues, and consistently helped me to improve my podcasting game. So if you want to establish and engage your audience or are ready to launch your own podcast, head to www.cult.media, that's cult with a K, to learn more. Also, thank you to Human24, fueling human potential and optimizing everyday human performance and well-being. The supplement range at Human24 not only helps improve your lifestyle, it optimizes it. The Human24 products are designed to fit around your circadian rhythms from the moment you wake up to key moments in the day when you need optimal focus to getting the best night's sleep. There is a product to optimize each phase of the day. My personal favorite is the Live On Form Pack, consisting of the products Rise, Flow, and Pre-Sleep. Rise is for the morning, and it's my absolute favorite. It's a drink that tastes amazing, it hydrates me, and improves my focus to win the morning. At 2 p.m., I take Flow, which is a caffeine-free nootropic, perfect for improving alertness and concentration during that mid-afternoon slump. And finally, I take pre-sleep just before bed, which is a comprehensive nighttime complex, perfect to support a performance-driven lifestyle. Check out the website www.hmn24.com for all their products, articles, and links to their awesome podcast for those wanting to learn more about human performance. You can even check out the episode I did with them. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Phil Lerney, co-founder of Human24, and it has led to an awesome collaboration with Human24 supporting the progress theory. If you want a 10% discount on all 
Human24 products, head to their website via the links in our Instagram bios of The Progress Theory or my personal Instagram account at Dr. Phil Price or use the code PhilPrice at checkout. As always, follow The Progress Theory on Instagram, YouTube, head to our website, theprogresstheory.com and have a listen to all of our other episodes. Here is Mike Toucher. Hi, Mike. How are we? Good. Good. Thank you so much for coming on The Progress Theory. I mean, your area within powerlifting and autoregulation, I think, is going to be really important for this particular season, especially if we think about how we can train strength and endurance at the same time. There's so many different stresses coming at you at one point. So your ability to autoregulate with your program, I think, is essential. So your ideas around autoregulation and something we'll go into regarding RPEs, I think it's going to be really invaluable for this for this podcast. So thank you so much for coming on. Man, my pleasure. My pleasure. I agree with you as well. I think you're right that if you're in a situation where you're kind of training for both, autoregulation becomes even more important just because, mm. well, maybe not just because, but in large part because the problems of predictability get to be so mm. complicated. Yeah, definitely. For anyone that's not familiar with your work, do you want to give a brief overview of your work with reactive strength training systems and stuff? Sure, sure. As you said, my name is Mike Tushir. I'm a powerlifting coach. I started coaching my university team uh, back in 2003. Um, I coached, coached them uh, for three years while I was there. And then uh, when I left, I was a, quite a good powerlifter. I wrote down what I had learned. And my initial thought was like, I'll try to get this published in the Powerlifting USA, which was the print magazine at the time. And I thought maybe it could be an article series or something like that. But the more I wrote, the more it grew. And eventually I thought I should self-publish this as a book. And so I did. And then someone asked me if I would coach them online. And at the time, I didn't even know you could do that. So, I, <laughs> But I was happy to, happy to give it a shot. And I liked it. And I've been doing that since 2008. And in the time since, we've coached lots and lots of lifters, lots of high-profile lifters. We've coached, I think, 14 world record holders at this point, people all over the world. We've got a, a number of coaches that all work on the, the RTS staff. And that kind of gives us a, a nice, there's a nice added benefit to coaching in a team environment as well. Like having mm -hmm. worked on my own for a number of years and then gotten to a position where we can start working as a team again, that's been great. So coaching powerlifting is mostly what I do. And I would say the, the high level powerlifters get the most, the most attention, you know, it's just the nature of things, I suppose. But we definitely work with lots of quote, normal folks who have a variety of priorities. And you mentioned coaching people for strength and endurance. I've got one now who that's a priority for him. So I don't write the running uh, portion of it, but kind of working, working with an endurance component is not totally foreign. It'd be great to hear what you're currently doing with that client, if they don't mind <laughs> discussing yeah, sure. what, what kind of goals they've got. Sure. My main concern there is the strength development. As I mentioned, I'm not, I'm not writing the running portion of, of that training, but mm. the training that I write has to mesh with the running. So in his case, it is a very, very flexible approach. And I've been 
kind of dabbling more and more with these very flexible approaches as time goes on. And the training session itself will be responsive to his perceived recovery on the day. He tells me which days that he's available and uh, uh, available for weight training. And we kind of build the plan from there. It's responsive to his perceived recovery. So if he's if he's feeling good and recovered, then at least heavier sessions are available. We may not necessarily do them. It depends on if we need them or not. Uh, but if he's not feeling recovered, then we don't attempt them. We'll save it for a couple days from now when he is feeling recovered and, and push it to then. But in his case, I would say that he's got things down to a fairly regular weekly pattern. So most of what you're Honestly, the biggest wrench in the works for him is having a small child at home and the sleep disruptions that come with that. That's probably the biggest chaotic factor, I, I suppose. Like the endurance training itself, we can get that to be fairly predictable. So the hyperflexibility component is probably more responsive to sleep disruptions than, mm-hmm. than it is necessarily endurance training. But he does try to uh, make sure that the longer runs are planned further away from heavier training sessions and things of that nature. And then when we get into the training sessions themselves, they are auto-regulated, uh, meaning that we'll use RPE to govern his weight selections. So if he's feeling good, then uh, we push the weights heavier. If he's not feeling good, then uh, the weights will be lighter. But at the end of the day, we're looking for a certain stimulus and the RPE allows us to get that stimulus regardless, nearly regardless of his day-to-day performance fluctuation. Yeah. For those that might not be too familiar with RPE, what, what is RPE? And I was quite familiar with your work within bringing RPE to powerlifting. So it'd be interesting to hear what made you think to try that approach in the first place, which is clearly something that's worked and really caught on within the powerlifting world. So what made you think, actually, I might try that? I originally came across RPE back when I was coaching my university team. At the time, I was reading absolutely anything I could get my hands on regarding strength training and was fairly obsessed with it. A lot of what I was reading, especially from more advanced lifters, would talk about and the need to learn how to listen to your body and how important that was in kind of dialing in your training to your particular response. That's great. Well, how do I listen to my body? <laughs> you know, like, what does that mean uh, in practice? And the answer that always came back was like, well, you just kind of have to figure it out. And it takes about 10 years of training to, to figure it out. And I thought, well, that's not going to be very helpful to my teammates, you know. It was not the end of the world for me. I was nearly at that whatever was supposed to happen, this magic 10-year time frame. I was near that myself. So I was kind of being observant of my own reactions. What was I noticing in training? If I kind of felt, hey, this is time to stop the session or I should do an extra set or I should put some more weight on the bar, what was guiding those perceptions? You know, I was paying attention to that. At the same time, there was lots of discussion around, hey, it's okay to leave a rep in the tank, which is funny considering how training tendencies, training patterns have changed over the years. But this would have been the early 2000s and lots of 
riders in strength training had to convince other lifters that it was okay to not rep out every set. It's okay not hmm. to take every set to failure. And and now I would say the pattern is quite the opposite of that, that people seldom take reps to failure. Anyway, that's a, another story. But anyway, this idea of, hey, it's okay to leave a rep in the tank. At the same time, I was reading uh, super training because at the time, that's what all uh, students of strength were supposed yep. to read. And uh, <laughs> there's a section in there about RPE. And I remember reading it and thinking like, that, you could apply that. And this idea of maxing, repping out or uh, leave a rep in the tank, you could leave two reps in the tank. You could leave three reps in the tank and just kind of mashing that up to the RPE scale. And in the time since, I think lots of, lots of lifters, experienced lifters, did this same sort of thing but they maybe didn't attach a number to it. They didn't have a way to communicate it as well. So like if you talk to, to old school lifter types, they did similar things, but they didn't use the same terminology. It wasn't easy to teach it or export it. So I think, and really that was my main aim is, okay, how do I take this thing that you're supposed to just learn through practice and just have this tacit knowledge of, of how to do advanced strength training and how do you teach that to somebody without it just requiring 10 years of your life and i think i think rpe has been fairly successful at doing that with novice lifters do you find even though you've, you've created something that you'd like to think won't take 10 years to really get used to <laughs> are there certain things that novice lifters might take a while to get used to rpe or what are they getting I guess they've got to get more familiar with how they perceive load in the barbell, how they perceive fatigue from previous sessions, all of those sorts of things. But is there anything in particular you've noticed that novice lifters, sometimes they're just, it takes them a while to get used to it? Yeah, for sure it does. And the whole idea of RPE, just a quick recap of the RPE scale, a 10 RPE is a maximum effort. And then we kind of use a reps and reserve uh, model reps and reserve as a as a term came much later, but it's a convenient framework. So, ten RPE is maximum effort. Nine RPE is one rep in the tank. Eight RPE is two reps in the tank. Seven RPE is still around three reps in the tank, but it kind of starts to diverge a little bit after that. But the high end of the RPE scale is the most important. So we'll just stick with that for now. So what I've noticed is that novice lifters don't really have much experience to anchor things to. If you don't know what a maximum effort is, then it's hard to know if there's one rep in the tank or two reps or, or so on. You have no experience to base this on. And so having never gone to failure is gonna make everything difficult. With that said, even advanced lifters can fall into that trap if they're using a, a new exercise or a twist on an old exercise that they're not familiar with, or it's been a long time, like a couple of years maybe, since they've done hack squats. So their rating may not be quite as dialed in. That's okay. The important thing is that you, the important thing is not to be super precise with it. The important thing is that it helps you make better training decisions. Of course, being precise is more useful than not. But sometimes people get hung up on this, this idea that they need to be extremely precise or else it's not useful. And that's not the case. The, the range at which this is going to be useful is a lot wider than people think it is. So even with a novice lifter, they don't, 
rate particularly accurately, you do pick it up pretty quickly. I would say if you're making an effort within a couple of months of serious training, you should be okay. I notice maybe more, there are certain, I guess, personality quirks that make rating a bit difficult. If you are the kind of person, I guess, more of like a, a meathead type that can never never put enough weight on the bar and everything, you rate everything as easier than it really is, then that can get you into trouble. And we also see plenty of people on the other end of the spectrum that rate things quite high RPE, but when you look at the, the film or something like that, they're not working as hard as you would like them to. There is a range that where you want to calibrate things, but it's it can be experience, it can be personality. So there's there is kind of a, a use case and a, a learning process to it. Do you find you make coaching decisions with RPE a lot based on personality? So for example, you've got someone that you know if you went uh, an RPE eight, really they're going to push for an RPE nine. So you might think, oh, okay, if I want them to hit RPE eight, maybe I'll program a RP7 for that session because I technically want RP8, but I know he always just pushes that too much, for example. Has that ever happened? Yeah, or That has certainly happened. For whatever reason, probably just luck. It's <laughs> not been so much my experience, but a lot of the other coaches have had those types of experiences. I mean, there's different ways to handle it too. Like that, that would be one is to just bias the rating that I'm programming, but I always preferred to try to coach them and correct them rather than just bias things. Like, for example, I've got a lifter now who is underrating things fairly consistently. I'll watch the film and I'll think that looked like a 9 RPE, maybe a bit more, and it'll be rated an 8 RPE. I could just bias it, but that's going to lead to possibly a greater error. If he just wants to go that heavy and he's going to go that heavy no matter what, then we'll have an even bigger error. So I don't want that. And it also will throw off our estimated 1RM calculations, which can make it more difficult to tell what's working and what's not. It'll make it more difficult when it comes time for attempt planning later, because he's going to be thinking, and I'm good for a whatever, I'm good for a, a huge PR. And then I'm looking at it and thinking, eh, maybe not as much as you think. And that's a difficult conversation with an athlete as they approach com competition. So my preference has been to just offer the correction to say, you rated that an eight. It really looks more like a nine to me. I, especially lately, it seems like I've had a number of lifters that just really seem to struggle with this concept. So we've brought in velocity as a way to provide some kind of a more objective validation of that effort. Actually, that was one of the questions I wanted to touch on is how did you mix RPE with the use of velocity data? Because I've seen you've yeah. used either push bands or the gym aware, certain mm -hmm. pieces of equipment which can measure barbell velocity. Have you found... Well, clearly you've found it very advantageous to include that to help with the use of RPE. Yeah, I, th I think it's great. I th it's not quite 100%, I would say, but it's very, very useful. And if I have an athlete that has it available or is willing to make it available, uh, then 
you know, we're, we're definitely going to take advantage of that as a tool. There's some edge cases where the efficacy kind of breaks down a little bit, but it's by and large a lot more available than it was a few years ago. And it seems like it's only getting more and more available. So I like to use velocity to validate RPE ratings in a in a more normal, straight set, somewhat fully rested type of capacity. If you're doing like multiple sets with short rest intervals or you're doing very high repetitions and things like that, then it's going to be a bit less accurate than you can be subjectively. But I would say 80%, 90% of a powerlifter's training it provides more granularity than you could have with your own subjective perception. And I guess you've given some examples there, but do you find certain RPEs uh, or the velocity data actually helps a lot more with certain RPEs? So for example, the closer it gets to a one or M, say the RPE 9 and let's say 8.5 as well, you kind of have a rough idea because it's slower. It's a bit more reliable in that area. Whereas as soon as you move down to sort of like six, seven, you get more variability with how they're moving, then the data isn't as helpful or because it similar to RPE, it's still just giving you guidance rather than giving you an exact measure. Is it still still whatever RPE that you give or program, it's the velocity data on top of that is still really helpful. Yeah. I would say it's still helpful. It's giving you a discrete number. One issue that we've had in the past that we see sometimes is if you want somebody to do something at very low RPE, say five or six RPE, it's hard to differentiate that. How many reps in reserve is that? At that point, we're not really talking so much about reps in reserve, at least with a classic RPE scale. It's more about bar velocity. And even if you did choose to use a strict reps in reserve uh, definition, it's still difficult. Like, did you have five reps in reserve or could you have done six? Well, it's hard to tell at that range. Uh, velocity does give you a discrete range to aim at. Like you'll be able to decide up front, I want the bar to move between 0.28 and 0.30 meters per second. And that's what it is. And if it's too slow, then we take weight off. If it's too fast, then we add weight. So it's very helpful at auto-regulating at low RPE submax effort sets. It's also very helpful at high RPEs. I would say where it breaks down is if you're doing very high reps, let's say like 20 plus reps, or if you're doing multiple sets with short rest intervals. So imagine you're doing like repeated sets of five and your first set is like an RPE seven. Imagine you're doing bench press. Let's do bench press. You're doing repeated sets of five at an RPE 7, or the first set's an RPE 7, and you're doing it on uh, like a one to two minute rest interval, and you're going to do eight sets. By the end of that, you'll accumulate fatigue. The bar speed might still be fast, but if you were to continue, you'll notice that that it drops off quicker than it does if you were fully rested. So normally, if you're fully rested and you took that same weight, and you did an AMRAP with it. Each rep gets progressively slower and slower until you can't complete a rep anymore. And that is going to uh, descend at a certain rate. Let's say it's like this nice, even descent. 
it's not quite that, but you get the idea. We're talking about numbers, which can be a little difficult sometimes. What you'll notice if you're in that short rest interval scenario where you're a little bit fatigued is that the drop-off is much more sudden, that it'll be fast, it'll be fast, and then you really struggle with one rep and there's nothing left. So you could, in theory, I guess, account for that using velocity, but it really gets to be quite complicated in terms of when you would invoke which uh, velocity model and and so on. So it's just not something that I think is worth the, the effort at this point. Okay. It isn't something where it's, if it was like a sudden drop, you think, okay, that's, mm-hmm. that's when we start. You're almost utilizing the velocity to just give you an indication of that's when we'll finish the work on this particular exercise. Or is it? Yeah. You could, you could do that as well. Okay. I mean, there's, there's so much utility there. And the more that you look at it and think about it, the more it will make you question some of the fundamental concepts. So the model that I tend to use with velocity is uh, I will correlate velocities to an RPE. So I may do some testing and and find that I'll have a certain range that's a 10 RPE, that's a 9.5 RPE, and so on. But that's only going to be as accurate as the input data was. And those things tend to be fairly robust, but I do kind of go back and update those charts maybe once a year just to make sure that they're tuned up. Okay. So, so you don't do that for each individual powerlifter. You'd have like normative data for all the powerlifters that's going through uh, your gym and your business. No, you would need to do it for each individual powerlifter and each individual lift. Oh, yeah. Which is another thing that that's complicates velocity. It's great if you're kind of a data nerd, which I would put myself in that category, and you're willing to accumulate that data and make the correlations and keep that stuff updated, that's great. If you're not, then probably sticking to RPE is is a, a better solution because it's a little bit more robust. It doesn't run out of batteries. You just learn it, and there's not a whole lot of conscious upkeep that needs to happen. With, say I didn't use velocity. I just focused on the RPE. How would I go about progressing over, let's say I have some kind of mesocycle over eight weeks uh, and I'm just looking to improve my bench and my squat. How would I normally try and progress the RPE over those eight weeks? Do I start low and progressively get, you know, increase start at like seven, 7.5, eight and go up that way? Or do you have more of like a wave function with the RPE? Or I guess this is very context specific, this question, but yeah, how do you typically try and progress RPE? So for me, I would, put that under the, the strategy of the block. So we've done all different ways of doing it. I would say the default way to do it now is to keep the RPE constant. You would decide what kind of, we, we would call it a protocol, what protocol gets you the training effect that you're after. And maybe that's a three reps at an eight RPE. You would do three reps at an eight RPE in that slot each week progressing through the block. And now as you get stronger, the weight that you're able to use for three reps at eight RPE goes up, but it's still three reps at eight RPE because that is a particular stimulus, that training load. Your body doesn't necessarily know the weight on the bar. I mean, 
that's a bit of an oversimplification. But if you think about it from the perspective of a muscle, it's, it's tension and duration. So in a way, it is kind of the weight on the bar because the, the weight on the bar is going to determine the contraction velocity. But whether it's plus 10 pounds or minus 10 pounds, is, the main thing is that tension and duration for the, and the practice of the skill. There's a, it's the same thing, tension and duration, from an overall coordination standpoint as well. So by keeping that rep and RPE constant, it's the same stimulus. And when we develop a, a training block, what we want to do is to choose a stimulus that we have a good reason to believe will give us the results that we're looking for. And we continue to use that stimulus over the course of the block. And we're monitoring the athlete's results as they go through. And that teaches us something. So if we do uh, triples at 8RPE for you, and you get a lot stronger, then that tells us something about your body's response to triples at 8RPE. And uh, conversely, if you don't get much stronger, then that tells us maybe that's a protocol that's not working for you. And then we can start to uncover why, but from a practical standpoint, from an implementation standpoint, kind of identifying the phenomenon first is important, probably the most important. That really makes sense to me because it seems that when a lot of people write programs, they're so desperate to change things week by week, and you don't really know if you've actually adapted from the previous week because you've just changed it. <laughs> so doing the same yeah. thing over and over again and, and increasing your performance and things like how it's perceived to how you perceive how you've lifted it, the velocity that you've lifted it makes complete sense. So yeah, I think that's a really, really good way. It's interesting what you were saying about how like that's a particular protocol, say three reps at RPE eight. Can can someone poorly respond to that protocol and then you do something like 8.5 for two reps, but they respond really well. And it's like a difference between one rep that they end up, you know, their ability to respond to it is completely different, despite it being quite very similar. I've seen the weirdest things when it comes to individual response patterns. <laughs> and it may not make sense from a pure physiology standpoint. Like the example that you gave, the difference between triples at eight versus you could even go the other way and say a double at seven, which should be the same weight. There's some differences in contraction velocity, but it's fairly small. You know, we would compensate the volume, so that would be a, a small difference, if any. But you may still just respond better. I can't help but think that there must be a significant psychological component to this as well. Mm -hmm. um, the more I do it, the more I notice things that I... I can't really explain except to invoke psychology just to, to say that lifters, well, feel free to stop me if I'm going too far in the weeds here, but this is kind of a strange scenario. We determine our block length based on the individual's response. So your training block is how long will it be? Well, we're going to monitor how long you're responding to that training. And that tends to be fairly robust as well. You have some people that peak in four weeks, some people it's five weeks or six weeks, sometimes it's three weeks. I would say the, the range tends to be three to eight weeks. 
And I've had a couple of people go past eight weeks, but it really gets unwieldy at that point. So you try to do some other things to, to shorten that time frame. And probably four to six weeks is average. Someone responds to a given stimulus for four to six weeks. And so let's say for you, it's, it's five. What makes it so that you respond to this for five weeks, but not six? What, what makes it reliably that that sixth week is a decrease in performance? And I've got to think that on some level, attention is a major player. And subjectively, I can tell you that like, I'm a powerlifter, so I like the things that I do, and I like lifting weights. And even if it's the same thing over and over, it's more weight than it was last week, so I like that. And attentive and engaged, it's more weight than it was before, so that's interesting to me. But then suddenly when it's not, the training gets very, very boring. Like It's, it's like everything is great until you get to that peak condition, and then suddenly the psychological experience changes. Now this feels boring. And so we make a bunch of changes to the training. We go into a pivot block and then uh, later another development block that's different. But we can talk about that another time, maybe. The point being that psychological experience, I feel like must be pretty important. Maybe to add a little bit more color to it. We find that we can control this time to peak. Well, not control it, but we find that the time to peak is related to the number of exposures to a stimulus. So in, we're saying five weeks, but that's kind of a convenient shorthand. It's really five exposures to a microcycle. A microcycle just tends to be about a week in most cases. Now we can change that. And if we did two microcycles in a week, we would still find that you peak after five exposures. So it would be the fifth microcycle. It would just be that it, it would take us, what, uh, two and a half weeks to get five exposures versus five weeks. Mm-hmm. And you can go the other way as well. You can slow down the pace. And it's, it's, your body's not a math. It's not a calculator. So it's not quite so precise, but it's, it, it's about that. In reality, you may peak after uh, four or six exposures if we're doing 2x frequency, or it might be four or six exposures if we're doing a half frequency. But anyway, I'm getting getting a bit too far off track. No, this is great. What I wanted to mention was what counts as an exposure? Let's continue talking about bench press. In a given training week, you take a, the normal microcycle that lasts for one week, we're going to bench press three, four, sometimes five times in that week. But we'll be doing something different in pretty much every session, at least the heavy work will be different. You'll have maybe one heavy bench session. You'll have some uh, assistance sessions and some supplemental sessions. There'll be different exercises, different rep ranges, and so on. One thing that we do is sometimes we'll program a touch-and-go bench press. So in powerlifting competition, the competition bench press is paused. Sometimes we'll program a touch-and-go bench. Now, Is that really different enough? Like a slight pause bench versus a touch and go bench. These things are very similar. And sometimes there'll be a similar rep range. So is that really different enough to count as a separate exposure? Or does it count as the same exposure and throw off our time to peak? Well, what I found is that it kind of depends on what the athlete thinks. If to them, a touch and go bench is pretty much the same as a competition bench, then it will probably count as another exposure and we will probably peak faster than we expect. 
if they consider touch and go bench to be something altogether different and it doesn't seem that close to them, then it will tend to not interfere. And I think that's weird. I think that hmm. sounds a lot like, I don't know, witchcraft or something, but that's been my, my observations. I can't help that. <laughs> because of that, do you sometimes make coaching decisions based on, you know, you're talking about, okay, you can either move the microcycle to be like half a week. So within two and a half weeks, you get five exposures instead of five exposures over five weeks, or you try and extend that. Do you sometimes, uh, for certain athletes, manipulate the, the frequency because their attention goes much more quickly? Usually not for attention's sake, because I, I find that if they're progressing, it, I mean, I'm tending to work with powerlifters. So if they're progressing, then they're, they're happy. That tends to not be the issue, but we will definitely manipulate frequency for timing. So say an athlete has, they peak in six weeks and they come to me and say, hey, there's a competition I want to do in 10 weeks. I'll look at it and say, okay, well, we're currently in the middle of this block and then we need to pivot. And then we want to do our peaking block and that takes this much time. Anyway, I'm going to try to work through all the numbers, but you sit there and, and look at it. And sometimes you're left with like a remnant and you say, what can we do during this you know, three-week period of time. We don't want to waste time. And that's a, a big part of what training approach tries to do is to make maximum use of, of your time without burning out your athletes. And so we don't want to waste that. So we think, well, if we could do a, a 2X frequency block, we can still get in one extra training block in this time frame. It'll be a, a shorter peak or something like that. And that's fine but it's still making maximal use of that. Your other options are to do a partial block. In that case, you don't really get to a peak condition, which isn't the greatest. We like to get into those peak conditions. Not only is it fun, but that's, the, that's your opportunity to push your athletic ability into some new territory. Mm. So if we can do something to reach that peak condition, then that's what we want to do. Well, a lot of this depend on the type of responder that they are, because this is something that I've been fascinated that's come out of your Instagram, sort of like a type one responder. I think it's more linear and quite consistently linear versus is it a type three where you might hit a plateau, but you keep going because you know in like two or three weeks, they're just going to see this peak suddenly happen. Would you be able to give a bit more of an overview of the different types of responders and then how you relate your RPE programming to that? Sure. Uh, we notice generally three types of responders. And and this is originally comes from the work of Dr. Anatoly Bondarchuk, who's a former Soviet throws coach, coached hammer throws, shot put, and coached in, also coached in Kuwait and Canada. I believe he still coaches in Canada. Anyway, his work is kind of where I came into contact with a lot of these ideas. And then we saw similar patterns in powerlifting as well. So the idea of uh, response types, we noticed three different types Type 1 responders, as you mentioned, fairly linear. They just kind of get better from one session to the next. And that's the most fun. Yeah. It's definitely the most fun. Most fun being the athlete, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's nice to just success week after week and you feel like things are going great and there's no stopping you. But, mm. I mean, that, that's great when it can happen. But this is also something that I think as of right now, anyway, is outside of our control. So we can't really choose your response type. It just kind of happens. 
and we have to be prepared for it. So like a type two response has their performance in week one, uh, a nominal performance in week one, then week two is actually a regression. And then week three sees a return to baseline or thereabout. And then from there on, uh, week four, five, and so on would be progression. So a small dip in the beginning and then progress thereafter. That one is slightly less fun in the early stages, but after that, you're pretty much in, in a similar pattern to the type one guys. So that can be fun. Type three is probably the most difficult to cope with. And, and that's what you mentioned earlier, which type three is kind of this static sort of performance where nothing much seems to be happening. Performance is fairly flat from week to week until the very end of the block when there's a sudden peak. And there could be like a small dip before that peak as well. But the main feature is that it's this kind of long, flat phase in the beginning of the block. And it doesn't have to be perfectly flat. There's always some variation, uh, variance in your performance. But, you know, pretty much not a lot of improvement, Not definitely not clear trends, just a little bit up, a little bit down, a little bit up, a little bit down. But it's fairly flat through the beginning stages. And that one's difficult to deal with because you're doing this training, you're working hard, but you don't have anything to show for it uh, until the very end of the block. And it's also worth noting that part of the reason that that's difficult is that there's not a guarantee of the payoff at the end. Are you in a type three response block or is this just not working? You know, well, you kind of have to go to the end to find out. So that's not a lot of fun, but knowing what your response type tends to be, it's not always the same, but no, kind of knowing what it tends to be is helpful. Just to give an example of that, I was working with a, a lifter. She's preparing to go for go to the world championship and we're about three weeks out from the world championship. So kind of this critical training stage where everything should be coming together. And she had a really bad training session and she uh, sent me a message. I was not crazy upset, but was definitely bothered by a poor, poor performance. But I was able to go back to her training data and say, show, show her the patterns and say, look, this is normal for you. You always have two sessions of improvement and then one session down. Two sessions of improvement and one session down. So here we are three weeks out. This is your down session. And from here, we're going to have two up sessions. And that, that final up session is going to end at the World Championship. And sure enough, that's what happened. She had a fantastic day at, at Worlds. It's much easier to get that buy-in and it's much easier to, to look past those difficult moments when you have kind of a, a clear established pattern that you can go back and refer to and say, oh yeah, this, this always happens like this. I can just keep the faith and, and it's going to be fine. Or if this is not normal for you, maybe you can take some sort of emergency action and try to, try to salvage things. So knowing is better than not knowing. Yeah, perfect example of why collecting and monitoring data of training is so important because you never know when you might need to refer back to it to get the athlete's buy-in of why you're making a certain decision. Absolutely. I tell people it's like, it's like investing. It's like retirement savings that you have to collect <laughs> it before you need it. Yeah, yeah. With the type three, say the athlete was relatively new, how long would you be willing to wait of that plateau until you think, 
actually, uh, this isn't working, let's pivot. Or, um, you know, is there like a rule of thumb? Like, I'll wait four weeks if we see nothing by this time. I normally move. No one's really ever peaked after four weeks. Just so anyone listening to this has a similar example and they're starting to wonder, oh, wait, did we change too early or should have waited or those types of things? I would go, if this, if this is your very first block and you have no idea what your time to peak uh, would be, I would go for eight because some people do peak rather late. It would be a, an unfortunate situation, just psychologically difficult, I suppose, to be a type three responder with an eight week time to peak. That's a lot of time of just buying in. But I would look for, for eight weeks just in case. Hopefully that's not the case. The other thing to keep in mind is just the athlete's, the athlete's psychology as well. If they have become frustrated and they're no longer interested in the block, then I'm not going to continue to to force that. I don't think there's... I don't think the things that we'll learn from kind of seeing it to the end would be worth the price of you know, the athlete's buy-in. It would certainly would not be worth the athlete's trust. So if struggling mentally and they're thinking like, hey, you know, I really don't know if this is working. I'm just kind of spinning my wheels here. Then I may, you know, change it early. Uh, we may try a different approach, see if we can get uh, some other some other way to get this information. If anyone's is strength trained but never really used RPE, or certainly not used RPE this consistently over time, mm-hmm. what would be your recommendations to for someone new to it? To you know, how would they go about starting programming, utilizing RPE to really develop their strength training programming? To start with, I would just continue doing whatever you're doing. Just practice rating the RPE. Just rate it. Write it down. And at first, there will be some variance, and you'll, you won't feel very confident with it, but keep practicing, and that goes away. And at some point, somewhere in the future, you'll, you'll have this experience where you're about to do a workout, and let's say it calls for 80% for sets of four, and you think, this is always a 7 RPE, but today, it's feeling more like a 6 RPE. It's definitely feeling easier. I wonder if I should move the weight up a little bit. And when you start having those thoughts, then it's time. It's time to move to a program that, you know, is more reliant on your perceptions that allows you that type of auto-regulated behavior that will account for that sort of thing. Because you do have these sorts of variations in your performance. And I'm of the mind that your long-term performance is a result of the sum of your short-term performances, something like the sum of your short-term performances. So to me, it's very clear that it would be better to take advantage of good performances in training and mitigate bad performances in training. Things are going well to, to really capitalize on that session. And then if things are going poorly, then do what you can to get what you can and don't cause any additional damage and move on to the next session. And I think that results in a much better long-term pattern. Um, Mike, that was absolutely brilliant. And there's 
already a few things I want to tra- tweak in my training based on this discussion. So thank you so much Excellent. for coming on to the Progress Theory. Where can people reach you? Where are you on the socials, website? I know you do a course as well. Yeah, how can, if anyone wants to learn more about this, how can they get in contact? Yeah, so our website is reactivetrainingsystems.com. Uh, we have a free training log on there as well that we're kind of constantly developing. So if any of this stuff is sounding interesting to you, we've developed a, a whole bunch of tools that help you get information back out of your training log. The whole point is to help you make better training decisions. And that's available for anybody to use for free on the Reactive Training Systems website. We also do have a course, and there are several courses actually, but the one that's coming to mind related to this conversation is the Emerging Strategies course. If this kind of programming conversation is interesting, then the Emerging Strategies course is definitely worth checking out. It goes into a lot of depth. It's very how-to oriented. How would you implement this in a practical scenario? Yeah, those are the the main things on the RTS website. Again, that's reactivetrainingsystems.com, but feel free to reach out to me. Instagram's probably the best place. It's just at Mike Tushir or at Reactive Training Systems. Either one works. Uh, brilliant. And also I have to say your podcast as well. I've learned a lot from your podcast and I really Thank love you. the really love the conversational atmosphere it brings. You just clearly there's usually about three or four people there who just love talking and lifting. And it just from that conversational nature, it just feels yeah. great. You you learn so many little nuggets that can really help with your training. So I'd recommend anyone listening to this to check out that podcast as well. Fantastic. I appreciate that. Cheers for everything, Mike. Thank you. Thank you.